You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. All right, so it's the beginning of the Second Vatican Council study. Uh, so we'll do six weeks here, and as we go, we'll kind of figure out how to um, split it up. But generally, uh, tonight we're going to do just kind of a background. Or also, this isn't going to be a purely lecture-based thing. That's lame and not uh, edifying, really, for anybody. So. I'm going to sort of at certain points ask questions and hopefully uh, have an answer, but also at other points just give some food for thought and hopefully open up for general discussion, not even necessarily for a question, but just for uh, a sort of teaching of the council or something that was emphasized in it. Uh, But in, in general, how we're going to break this up is I think this Vatican II collection, that Word on Fire release, was a great resource because it gives, it has the four core documents of the Council. Vatican II released a lot of documents. Uh, So there's a lot to look through, and it can actually be overwhelming at times. These four core documents uh, that we'll be going through, some in more details than others, uh, are a really good starting point uh, for getting at what the Council was trying to do what the church was trying to do in this council. And so tonight, I'll break down the background to it, because actually I found uh, in my study of the council, the, the things sort of leading into it were some of the most uh, beautiful and, and also sort of tension-filled uh, things about the council was, was everything that went into it and why it even existed in the first place and, and what it was trying to do Uh, and what it was trying to do at the beginning, and then what it did, uh, it didn't change at its core, but certainly developed as the council went on. And if we don't know what was happening beforehand, we can fall into one of two extremes that I'll kind of point to more next week than than this week. Uh, But I think it's not even necessarily what Vatican II did that is controversial in the church today. It's it's the thing itself and what it's become culturally, especially in America for Catholics. Um, as we know, all know, kind of find ourselves somewhat divided in, in the American church. And in many ways, it, much of the division finds its root in uh, Vatican II. And so I want to I dig into that uh, in our time here. So first... I thought about not even giving a context for the Second Vatican Council. The main reason is because any discussion of that context almost seems as controversial as the thing itself. Um, Because many would argue that there wasn't even a need for the council. Um, And I think much of of that argument is based on, you could say, statistics. And I'll, I'll give you some statistics today. I gave you a little sheet with the statistics just for the last 20 years uh, in the Diocese of Helena, and we can dig into that for a second. It's not really, um, it's not really, uh, those statistics are actually almost outdated already because the last two years in Montana has been hugely 
definitive in, in the population growth and everything. So, But a lot of people cite numbers as a reason that we didn't need a council to begin with. So just a few statistics in America. In 1965, there were 180,000 women religious. There are 45,100 today. In 1965, there were 60,000 priests. There are 37,302 today. Half the Catholic schools that were open in 1965 have closed. Now those are interesting statistics, and you can say that they're not necessarily going to tell the whole story. Because, because one statistic, this, this thing's telling me something goofy. Someone asked me to record this thing. So there are more Catholics in America than there were in 1965. There are 65 million, and there were 45 million in 1965. Now, population growth in America has basically been linear on that. So there were 199 million people in America in 1965. 332 was the number I found for today. That seems a little low for the actual number of Americans. But that lines up pretty evenly with the growth of actual Catholics in America. The problem with that number is that there were actually more baptisms when we had 45 million Catholics than 65. So in that sense, uh, and on top of that, there were actually, there's two different polls that are slightly different, so I'll give you both of them. In 1958, a Gallup poll said that 74% of Catholics went to Sunday Mass. And a study from Notre Dame in 1994 said that it was 26%. And so that's pretty similar to uh, a study from Fordham that said it was, in 1965, 65% went, and in 2000, it was 25%. 25% is the number we always hear today. Only 25% Catholics even go to Mass. And so despite there being more Catholics in America today, fewer go to Mass on a Sunday basis. That's why we see that. That's why the number seems to be uh, going down, even though, even though the number technically is going up. Now, those statistics are you could say objectively compelling, but subjectively we know that they don't tell even any of the story because there's a lot going on in America for between 1965 and now apart from Vatican II. Uh, and we could point to any other Christian church or any other church in general to see many of the same sort of statistics, you could say. Now, Given our numbers, though, and and given how the church looked in that time, why would we call a council? If it seems as though things were rocking along so well, why did we need one? So I don't know, how many of you here know anything about Vatican I? Has anyone ever like read through the documents of Vatican I or looked into it? Yeah. So, in 1869, Pope Pius IX convened the first Vatican Council. And that's, the first Vatican Council was, in many ways, meant to be sort of what Vatican II became. But it didn't get to do that for a multitude of reasons. 
it did release two documents, uh, De Filis, which is a, a dogmatic constitution, so like reaffirming certain teachings of the church, condemning certain heresies that had begun to grow up uh, in the world and in the church, and then uh, probably more famously, Pastor Aternis, which is the document that defined papal infallibility. So the, it defined what papal infallibility meant, uh, what it meant for the Pope to be infallible. Book. So I was going to read. Uh, I might as well read it. It's a great little summary. This is what this is what papal infallibility is defined as. The Pope has full and supreme power uh, of jurisdiction over the whole church. And when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all nations, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses, by divine assistance, promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith and morals. Now, I I guess I, I bring that up because we all tend to have a slightly incorrect view of papal infallibility. Like, Pope Francis's tweets are not infallible. Neither are his interviews, neither are his... Um, and it's goes, it goes for Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II. You know, we've had such great popes in the last hundred years that we've all become, to a certain extent, what we call ultramontane, which is like every word that comes out of the pope's mouth is totally reliable and 100% true. Now, I think for the most part, because we've had great popes, you can rely on what they say. But to the issue with that would be that we could... And this is what one of the things the Vatican II in many ways tried to do. When we hang on the Pope's every word, we start to see the church as Rome. And then we're a sort of franchise of Rome. And that's not the way the church operates. It's, never, it's not the way it ever has. Um, and then we become a little bit, you could say, too dependent on Rome itself for giving us direction. Whereas it's in the in the Christian church, it's always been sort of the local church growing up to the the whole church. It begins with the parish, and then go and then you know to the diocese. To um, I'm not even going to say the USCCB because the Conference of Bishops is a sort of uh, I don't I don't want to get into that. The the College of Bishops as a whole come together. When we get an ecumenical council, that's a rare thing. Um, and so it speaks with authority, but it, it's not meant to be a, something that carries us through our day-to-day life. So uh, right after releasing this document, uh, the Franco-Prussian War broke out, and the Germans took Emperor Napoleon III hostage, and all the French troops that were guarding Rome were pulled out and basically united Italy uh, came in and and occupied Rome. And so we, they couldn't hold a council because United Italy wasn't about to let that happen. So uh, Pope Pius IX uh, let go of the council indefinitely, and it actually wasn't adjourned until 1960, right at the beginning of Vatican II. So Vatican I lasted 
almost 100 years and did almost nothing, uh, other than declare papal infallibility, which is not nothing, I guess. So the first reason would be we never finished the council we, we started in the first place. The Vatican I had never really been finished. We never really had sort of accomplished what we, what we thought the Lord wanted to accomplish in that, in that council. Also, I was reading in an in a interview with Benedict XVI recently. He was, a, he was a huge part of the council. He was a young theologian uh, who was the advisor to uh, Cardinal Frings, who was an extremely influential German cardinal. And, and so he was sort of his theological advisor and very up and coming in the church, you could say. Benedict XVI being a, the brilliant theologian he said he was. And he said, you could argue that this council was unnecessary, but the mood in the church as a whole, and that matters because the voice of the people matters, the mood in the church as a whole was ripe for change. Everyone was sort of waiting for whatever was coming, uh, and it seemed as though things were already changing in the church, and so we needed to address it. Also, things were changing drastically in the world, and we needed to sort of grapple with that, or the church was going to be speaking a language that no one understood. And you could argue that the church, in many ways, already was speaking a language that no one understood. And not even that they didn't understood, but that it was like, it was so ancient, the way that we spoke, that no one was, no one was comprehending it in a way that was moving them. So... You could, I'll, I'll speak to a little bit to the changes that were happening in the church. Uh, and this isn't necessarily just like liturgical things, because I think when we think of Vatican II today, we think of liturgy, because that's the most uh, visible change that came out of Vatican II. But much more uh, what was happening in the sort of way that we approached God, the way that we approached Theology and the way that we approach sort of pastoral work in the church was changing in a pretty drastic way. Uh, and I, I'm going to speak some words that, I don't want to say words, I'm going to speak to some movements that you don't necessarily have to understand completely, uh, but they're important for what we're going to look into that, that I think is the most in, important change of Vatican II. So, who trying to think of how to ask this question. When you think of church documents from like, or the way the church spoke to the world from like 300 until 1900, could you think of uh, the, the style of the, the words the church used, or like the, the voice the church used? Does anyone have any sort of opinions on that. I don't know how to ask this question. What's up? What's that? Yeah, actually, that's a great... If this thing was causing a bunch of feedback. Uh, severity is a good word to describe it. And that... So the, the, the technical term would be called a canon. Uh, now, if you... I'm sure you've seen at least movies or read examples where someone says like, the church says, if you believe this, you are anathema. If you believe this, you're anathema. Anathema meaning like, cast into the outer darkness, you're excommunicated. Like, you're a heretic. 
if you believe this. And, and the reason for that, so generally what councils released for most of human history before we had printing presses and we could just print unlimited pages was a single creed, a single page. It's like, like the Nicene Creed that we say every Sunday. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, that, that sort of creed. And then they would release a list of canons, which is like, basically, these are all the people we've come across recently who are heretics, and these are all the books that are condemned. So that, and that was, you could say, imminently practical, because it's not like the laity were just reading all of these things. Most people, for most of church history, were illiterate. So those were sent to bishops, and then they said, hey, this guy's in your diocese, get him under control, he's spreading heresy. And there's, and there's no way to combat this other than to just tell him to be silent. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. And so that's, that's just the practical way in which the church spoke because for a multitude of reasons. We had limited pages. Um, we were, it wasn't only a matter of the church in many places, it was a matter of the state government because heresy led to uprisings, uprisings led to instability. Instability wasn't good for the state or the church or the world, you could say. Now. It got to a point, especially after the Reformation, when that became less and less effective because heretics were everywhere. There was just other churches, and they didn't think of themselves as heretics, and they were growing, and so approaching problems in that way became less and less effective. And the First Vatican Council was was a sort of effective, or it, it was a sort of change away from that type, style of speaking, but it wasn't really much of a change. Now, I'll, I'll give you John XXIII's reason for calling the Second Vatican Council, which speaks a little bit to his uh, character. He says this, As regards the immediate cause for this event, which gathers you here together at our bidding, it is sufficient for us to put to record once more something which, though trifling in itself, made a deep impression on us personally. The decision to hold an ecumenical council came to us in the first instance, in a sudden flash of inspiration. We communicated this decision without elaboration to the Sacred College of Cardinals on that memorable January 25th, 1959, the Feast of St. Paul's Conversion. In this, in his Patriarchal Basilica, the response was immediate. It was as though some ray of supernatural light had entered the minds of all present. In the end, we call the Second Vatican Council because John the 23rd wanted to call a council. That's what it comes down to. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the honest answer. And that's okay, because we trust that the Holy Spirit works, um, as we see through the Holy Father. He, like Benedict XVI, was feeling that mood that everything was changing and we needed to do something about it. And so, uh, now pointing to the the sort of theological movements of the day. How many of you have ever read anything from St. Thomas Aquinas? So St. Thomas Aquinas, great theologian. No one in 1960 was questioning how incredible St. Thomas Aquinas was. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas was part of a school called scholasticism, which you could say formed the way in which we do class in the Western world. The scholastic style was basically formed our classroom of today in many ways. Uh, 
because the university sort of grew up around scholasticism. And what that, that style is, is a, a deep attempt toward being as precise as you possibly can in seeking out answers to a thing. So St. Thomas Aquinas will take a question like, um, you know, is the Eucharist the body and blood of Christ? He'll put forward like 18 arguments against the Eucharist being the, the true body and blood of Christ. He'll answer all 18 of those arguments one by one, and then he'll give an answer, his final answer. This is, you know, it is because of these multitude of reasons. Uh, and that was the style in which the church spoke, seeking out that deep and, and really intense precision. Now, that was the reason why we wrote the way we wrote in church documents. All the theologians in the church were, were scholastics. Now, in the beginning of the 20th century, you start to see other schools of thought and that kind of rise up out of the church. And, and the movement was called Novel Theologiae. And there's kind of two, two currents within this. And I think if you've ever looked into sort of Protestant Reformation, you'll recognize uh, some things here. One was called aggiornamento, which is in many ways an attempt to do with the modern world what Thomas Aquinas did with Aristotle. Now, what, what, think about like, does anyone know what were the great empires in the world in 1800? The Ottoman Empire, the Habsburgs, yeah. So in 1800, pretty much the whole world was ruled by monarchies or empires. In 1960, basically after the world, Second World War, all of that was gone. The entire world was completely transformed in a very short period of time. And, and from that, whole new states, whole new ways of looking at the world came up out of that. Um, you also see the Enlightenment thought, which changes the way we look at the world scientifically and empirically. You also see the Industrial Revolution, which changes the way we look at the world in terms of our abilities to first to travel, technologically advancement or technological advancement. Everything has changed culturally and in terms of technology. And so the church, though, really functionally and even the way we spoke had not changed at all in those 200 years. And so there's a movement called aggiornamento, which is basically we need to get our language and the way we work in the world up to date and sort of bring it into line with the modern world. And then you have the sort of counter movement, which was called ressourcement, which is basically a French word for like to the source. Uh, does anyone know the words odd, odd fontes? Who coined that? Do you know who coined that term, odd fontes? Okay, yeah, yeah, the the uh, humanists, the original humanists, uh, in the like not the humanists of like. 19th, 20th century, but the humanists of like 15th century. Uh, I'm trying to, Erasmus of Rotterdam, of Rotterdam. And what they meant was they saw in, in the world how, how like much of the beauty and knowledge of the ancient world had been lost and they wanted to sort of recover that, recover this sort of classical style of learning. And Odd Fontes 
in the church, what that meant in the 20th century was go back to the source. Uh, has anyone ever, I'm trying to think of, can anyone name just like a, a couple of church fathers? We think of as church fathers now. Ambrose Augustine. Anyone else? Anthony of the Desert. Desert Father. Who didn't necessarily, I mean, his biographies. Famous. He didn't necessarily write. Origen, uh, Athanasius, Irenaeus, all these, all these writers who we're, I guess maybe we're not totally familiar with now, but you, you'd probably recognize them if you heard them. They had been completely lost, you could say, in the world. And this, uh, this racehorse ma movement wanted to move back to the beginning of the church to study all of the great writers and early Christians and figure out sort of what the church looked like at the very beginning, uh, this whole like first to fourth century church, and sort of try to recover that and, and remove what they, what they said was like a lot of, a lot of the baggage that we, that we had accumulated. Now, both of those movements in the end wanted to change things. They, they, what they both saw was that things needed to change. And that's sort of terrifying for especially the scholastics who, who thought we were doing a pretty good job as it was. The church had been had, had been pretty become pretty established and moved started moving in a pretty uh, and had, had been moving in a good direction and, and theolo- theology had been sort of solid and stable for hundreds of years. Why would we want to go back to a time when people were trying to search for these words to speak about God that we that we now had, it's like it's like looking back at the NBA in the 40s and being like, wasn't it great back when basketball first started, uh, when we didn't have a three-point line to complicate things, and we didn't have you know MJ flying in and dunking from the free throw line? I mean, you could say yeah, there was probably some sort of like beautiful, nice. I can't get this thing to stay up. There, there's some nostalgic feelings about that, but in the end, like the NBA is better now. Like it's better now. It, it's it's just more beautiful to watch. And so, why would you want to go back to the NBA when they didn't really know what basketball was all that much? So, the the uh, scholastics would say, why would we want to go back in time to a time when we were trying to seek out the things that we've now already found? What's the point of that? Anyways, the, these three movements, right around 1960, were all sort of battling it out. And ne- none of them had, you could say, the upper hand. None of them were dominant fields of thought in the church. They were all sort of grappling with one another as to how the church ought to move forward, which in many ways sets, sets the stage for the perfect church council. Now, it sets the stage for a really dramatic sort of grappling, but at the same time, uh, it is actually through through the grappling with one another of these different schools of thought that we get um, a lot of creative outflow in the council. That's why it was so sort of beautiful and prodigious in so many ways. And, and I think that's actually in many ways providential. And so we have these these different schools coming together, and and 
and trying to figure out how the church should speak to the world. Uh, and now, with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit in. Did anybody get a chance to look at the the intro document from uh, John the 23rd? The beauty of John the 23rd as well is that he's not really a part of any of these schools of thought that exist around the time of the council. He's actually just uh, a country priest from around Florence, from the countryside outside of Florence. He's not really a theologian per se, which made him, in many ways, the perfect pope to call a council because he didn't have a dog in the fight theologically. And so I'm going to just kind of let him speak in many ways to um, what we're trying to do in the Second Vatican Council. Did anyone have any, anyone who looked at it have any sort of like questions or initial thoughts on that, on that document? It's a pretty short document. It's kind of, uh, I guess I read into it a lot because I love the Second Vatican Council and I have a lot to say about it. But first, the first thing that I think is really important is that the, does anyone know how many ecumenical councils the church has had in its history? Hey, did you get that from the document? or Wow, you just knew that off the top of your head. I didn't even know that until I reread this. Uh, 21 ecumenical councils. That, that lines up to about one per century. So not a lot of, not a lot of ecumenical councils. And actually, um, there was, no, I guess not. I, there's a lot of them packed into the first five centuries of the church um, because because we had a lot to talk about in the first five centuries of the church. So, Second Vatican Council is the 21st ecumenical council. 2,000 years, that's how many times the whole church has gotten together, and by far the biggest in terms of the, the, the amount of bishops presence, present and the amount of people contributing, it is by far the largest ecumenical council that's ever taken place in the history of the church. So to say... To say that it's a, a false counsel or that it was co-opted somehow or that it didn't actually speak what God wanted it to speak is actually, yeah, it's to lose, it's to lose faith in the church because so everyone was there. How could it not have ended up speaking the mind of the church? Anyways, we're going to talk about that a little bit more next time. Um, for now, we're going to speak to some sort of interesting things that Pope John XXIII has to say. So he said this, the goal of this, the goal of this council is to safeguard and expound with greater efficacy the heritage of Christian truth. So, and, and we'll see more and more uh, of this in the council that the goal of this council is not necessarily to say anything new, which is, which is a really interesting thing to, to go about, that we don't really have any controversial teachings to talk about, what we have to talk about is how are we going to speak these things to the world today? Um, so he says we, we don't want to lose sight of what we have, what's been given to us from the previous 20 councils. We also don't want to fall behind the modern world and its changing conditions. And he says, which has opened up new apostolates. And, and I'll, I mean, I'll just give, cite a local example. We just had we just had this block party 
And in this block party, we formally, we formally teamed up with a Lutheran campus ministry, a non-denominational, so the Emmaus, Alpha Omega non-denominational uh, campus ministry, Young Life, which is also non-denominational, um, and then a couple of frats and sororities to, to put together an event. And that, in, in the world prior to sec- the Second Vatican Council, ecumenical dialogue was... It was. It just didn't happen in that way. Like I mean, I even remember my mom. This is a. This is, I'm going on a little anecdote here. My mom talking about like her her Catholic friends growing up, who would say things like, uh, you know, you seem really cool, but it's, it's unfortunate you're going to hell. You know those sorts of things. Like the this whole cultural divide between Catholicism and the rest of the world. That the idea of anything productive happening that's not happening on the sort of lofty theological level um, in terms of ecumenical dialogue wasn't a thing. And so the new apostolates that he's speaking to, I think, are, are these sort of reaching out to the world in new ways. Uh, he always, he, John XXIII always talked about it as like opening the doors of the church to the world. So he says, we're not here to discuss the fundamentals of Catholic doctrine, nor restate in greater detail traditional teaching of the fathers or more recent theologians. But he says, and this is where you see some of this uh, aggiornamento, resource ma, like coming out here. He says that the teachings of the church have to be studied afresh and reformulated in contemporary terms. For the deposit of faith, truths contained, which are contained in our time-honored teaching, is one thing. So the teachings are one thing. Those aren't changing. But the manner in which these truths are set forth, the manner in which we speak about them, that is something else. And then he talks about the the council being predominantly pastoral. And I want to ask you what you think the word pastoral means. Because this is a loaded, I don't don't know, I'm asking a loaded question, I guess. What does the word pastoral mean? To be pastoral, yeah, it's the catechize. And what was the first thing you said? Take care of the flock. Yeah, take care of the flock, okay. So you could say in the two sort of schools that have come out of the council or out of the modern church, the word pastoral... Oh, did you have an answer? Oh, I thought I saw someone raise their hand. Uh, The word pastoral has come to mean, for one group of people, you could say, like, weak or watered down, and for another group of people, empathetic and understanding. And neither of those are actually good definitions for the word pastoral. Actually, Benedict defines pastoral as to bring someone to the point of decision. So to be a pastor is to bring someone to a decision point by means of some compelling argument. Um, And so he says pastoral in the sense that uh, the goal of the church isn't to uh, explain doctrines with, he used it, the arm of severity by condemning. Because that doesn't bring anyone to conversion. The goal of the church is to explain her doctrines by means of 
John XXIII called it the balm of mercy, which means to sort of just speak the truth in a compelling and beautiful way, and, and that will in itself be sort of moving to the hearts of people. So, we have a council that is is coming about in a time that's extremely sort of rife with uh, instability in the world. And it's not necessarily, uh, well, there is, there is sort of war instability in terms of the Cold War happening around the 60s. Um, and Mao in China, uh, but the but in terms of the the real instability is a cultural one. There's there's a great essay in which a someone does a thought experiment. And they say if you were to to transport someone from 1900 to 1950, they would see a world that was sort of unrecognizable. You know, because in 1900 you're not even really driving cars unless you're extremely wealthy. You're in 1950, almost everyone is. Um, you have, I think television was coming on the scene around that time. It, it, things, technologically, things were transformed. But culturally, things didn't really change much at all from 1900 to 1950. If you took someone from 1950 to 2000, technologically, things wouldn't be all that different. You know, the technology's gotten a little bit more advanced um, by degrees but it hasn't really changed all that much. But culturally, things had completely changed in those 50 years. And so we have a council that's sort of right at the beginning of that change trying to grapple with what that means for us as Christians in the world. And, and trying to do so with totally new schools of thought in many ways, ones that hadn't really existed even 50 years prior. And so you're going to get... Um, I think what I think came to be a really fruitful and good council. However, it's being implemented in a world that is in flux. And so you're going to see a lot of chaos in the aftermath of that. John Henry Newman says in every council that the church has ever had, it takes 50 years to begin to understand what was actually happening in it. And I think we're sitting 60, right around 60 years. Um, and, and if you look at those numbers in the Diocese of Helena, actually you begin to see uh, right around the sort of like 20, 2010 to 2020, you start to see a lot of the numbers uh, in terms of Catholics in the church begin to sort of flatten, around, flatten out and turn around. Um, and I think, so I think we've really uh, begun in the church to take in the teachings of Vatican II, and and there's always a time after a council when when uh, we're just going to try new things around that time, and I think that's a lot of that is good and fruitful in many ways, and in and in other ways, a lot of people who don't like change, like all of us, are going to be shocked by it, and so uh, this next week we're going to dive into what I think. Uh, well, we'll try to get into the first uh, document as well, but I think dive into what I think is the most important change um, in the Second Vatican Council 
which I won't tell you yet because it's, um, it's actually my whole thesis, which I will not be reading to you because uh, that would be a horrible experience for everyone, including me, uh, to relive that. Um, but, the, but digging into what, what, is, what is the most important change. Um, if, if it's not a doctrinal change, then why is the church so different um, than it was 60 years ago? Um, and what, what exactly was it that we, that we changed? And is it going to be fruitful? Are, are, like, not that the numbers matter, but numbers matter because each number is a soul. And we need to bring the fullness of the truth to as many souls as possible. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't deem success. It doesn't define success. But it also matters that the gospel is being preached fruitfully. Um, and so is that going to happen as the result of these teachings that we have here? Uh, and we'll see the sort of different ideas on whether that's, that's possible or good and, and whether that actually happened in these documents. Um, so that's all I have for you. Oh, my gosh. I, oh, okay. We started, I thought we started at 6 and I had gone 20 minutes over. That would have been horrible. Um, we ended a little early. But now uh, I want to take, if anyone has sort of questions about this going in, um, that'd be great. And I could send, also, does everyone have this on order or want to get this on order? We've got like seven of them coming. I don't know if they're, I, don't, I think we just ordered a random number, so I don't think they're spoken for or anything. Uh, the book is the Vatican II Collection by Word on Fire. And I've got like printed things with the link for it back there um, if you want that. And so we'll, we'll get into the more the bulk of this, I think, the more interesting stuff. Uh, and I could... Uh, I'm not... Um, I'm not... I'm extremely optimistic for the future of the church. Um, and I think Vatican II is, in many ways, the source of that optimism. Um, I think what it's, what it's spoken is good uh, and fruitful. I don't want to give away my my position, but I actually, I guess I will give away my position. I'm a priest uh, in the church, so obviously I'm pretty optimistic. Um, but I think uh, we'll get there uh, with these documents uh, and try to dig in and see what's going on and kind of work through uh, what, what's sort of, yeah, and, and, and then you hear people say over and over again, well, like, if you just read the documents, if you just read the documents, um, and, and I, I actually, when someone told me to do that, I went and read them, and actually didn't get much further along in what I thought um, just just from like a like a straight like book read of the documents and so I think it's good to really study them um, because because if you ask someone like the five things actually this is my take-home project uh, maybe maybe do this ask like two or three people what who, who would actually have an answer for this question maybe what are like the five things Vatican II did in the church? What are the five changes that came as the result of Vatican II? Um, and then, and then once we like when we get answers to that, and we then we and then we read the documents, we'll see if that's actually there. Um, because, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week. But the main the main source for what was happening at Vatican II for almost everyone, especially in America, was the news. It was like the mainstream news. That's that's Vatican II for most Americans. And as we know, the difference between an event and the reporting of that event in the mainstream news 
is often, it's often not the same thing, no matter where you're getting your sources. Uh, it's just not the same event. Uh, and so these documents, there's, but there's also a reason why the documents themselves are, all right, I'm getting into my lesson for next week, and I don't want to do that. Uh, okay, so any, anyone else have anything? Yeah, and, and it, there's like, when I talk to my aunt, she'd be someone who was really excited about the whole thing. She taught at a Catholic school, and so it was all this excitement, and the church was new all of a sudden. And then I talked to my grandpa, who was a very old school lawyer, and, and he was just like, this is insane, and he just left. Um, and, it, and he literally just left because he thought it was insane. It, it's not even like he understood anything. He was just like, this is a sudden change, and it's drastic, and I don't like it, and I'm leaving. Uh, and so there's there's this really interesting contrast. Uh, it and and so yeah, I think we. I, I would like to. I'm going to talk to some people who who were some of the people who wanted me to uh, do this and and see if they're willing to come and give their some of their opinions on this because I've had some discussions about having to do with a lot of people. But I think yeah, the exterior changes were the most. Uh, were definitely seen as the most kind of, they were the most obvious. And the behind the scenes and a lot of the things in the documents themselves, because only one of the documents even speaks to the exterior changes. And that's, we'll go over that, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the liturgy and its changes. The rest of the documents are very, very much more at the core of what the church is doing. Um, and now, the, and they had effects in the world, but in many ways, um, in, in many ways, I think they're going to be more influential in the long run, but they, they weren't as visible as the liturgy one.
Sure. It was it was embraced in a different way in each place. And and it and it actually is interesting. Say you go to Poland. Poland had a, a total renewal after Vatican II. I mean, it went from it went from being a sort of you know officially Catholic, not officially Catholic, but majority Catholic state, to Poland's 99% Catholic. It's it's it was incredible what happened over there, and and that had a lot to do with a lot of things as well, um, but a lot to do with you know Karapotiwa, the, the the Cardinal of Krakow, who implemented Vatican II uh, in a in a very intentional way over there. He was one of the great movers and shakers of the Council. Later, John Paul II. Uh, he he was the one who who implemented it in in Poland. In Africa, you see total renewal after the Second Vatican Council. Huge amounts of of people coming to the church, and and so it's really interesting in, in different places where you go. The U.S. We had our own issues to deal with, ma- mainly because of the Cultural Revolution that was just so much bigger here uh, than than in other than in other countries. And to be honest, most of what I've looked into in Vatican II has kind of been in the context of the United States. Um, so I can speak a little bit to the other countries, uh, but not as much as I can here locally. Um, the amount of books written on Vatican II in the United States in particular is absurd. Uh, it's just uh, overwhelming, and most of them aren't worth reading. But uh, hopefully I read the ones that are worth reading, and I can give you uh, some some of what they said. But yeah, we're hitting our time. So uh, we'll call it for the week, and next week we will go over we'll go over the sort of what I think is at the core of the council, and then we'll start to get into Dei Verbum, which is actually the it's a beautiful document on the scriptures and divine revelation, what that all means and looks like. Um, so Dei Verbum. The, it means the word of God, obviously it's the word. The, and uh, so we'll dig into that and, and what it means for the church to interpret the scriptures and what it means for God to speak to us. Um, and I think that's where we get into not just like the politics of a council, but like the actual core of what it is to be a Christian. And so we'll say our glory be and be on our way. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be world without end. Amen.